psychological matters. Dr. Linda Ngube Ngomo, CEO of the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund, joins us now. Uh, Dr. Linda, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Good evening, Aubrey, and good evening to all your listeners. So, filicide, uh, something, of course, very difficult to talk about and uh, I suppose very difficult to sort of um, get one's mind around because of the way we've been brought up to understand uh, that the relationship between a mom and a child is almost uh, sacrosanct in the sense that one would not expect a mom to harm their newborn baby. But it happens, Dr. Linda, doesn't it? It absolutely does happen. And there's just too many instances of, of it being of happening and still not enough instances of it happening being reported. It is really something that is um, not something that we should even be reading or hearing about. But the sad reality is that there are mothers who get to a point of killing their own children. Why does it happen, Doctor? Oh, I think it's a very complex issue. But some of the factors, you know, um, undiagnosed mental health issues. Uh, mothers who go and deliver babies and come out with a postpartum de- a depression that's not diagnosed. You've got societal um, issues of um, not having a, sub- a support group. You've got substance abuse. You've got poverty and the pressures that that puts on a family. So as I'm saying, uh, Aubrey, there are so many things that could drive a mother below, uh, beyond the edge, that one cannot limit it to this is what is causing it. But um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex issue and one that would need a multifaceted approach to be addressed um, further and to prevent um, future incidents of what is happening right now. You speak of postpartum depression and, of course, all of the societal issues that can uh, be discussed around why we are under pressure as human beings under the best of times, right? But mm-hmm. we are raised, we grow up, we are socialized to believe that there's something about the mother and child bond that sort of uh, that goes above and beyond any circumstance that may uh, make a mom wish to or or, or, or have the propensity to harm their baby, particularly a newborn baby, Dr. Linda. I, I know that my question sounds like a repetition, but w- what would be the trigger? What would be the cause of such extreme behavior? It's, it's, really, it's really difficult, like I say, to say this particular thing yeah. would be the cause. Um, in a mother that... Um, is a, is a substance abuser. It could be triggered by the fact that there has been so much use of the substance that she's no longer in a position to make rational decisions. In a mother that is not employed and is watching children starve and waste away before her very eyes, it could be triggered by the deep levels of stress and the frustration of not being able to provide, which is part of how we are socializing mothers um, to be that a mother provides, a mother nurtures, and so on. And when the environment doesn't allow a mother to do that, that could could be a trigger that drives her over the edge. Another mother, it could be just the sheer depression that's not been treated to a point that she's no longer able to cope and just sees 
death as the only way out. So there isn't one answer, I think, to this issue. You would have to look at what happened in these circumstances. And the answer may be very different to what happened in another set of circumstances where ultimately the result is children being killed by their mother. And, and, and of course, the multiplicity of reasons uh, that converge and then create a particular uh, uh, action, and usually that is the killing of one's child, uh, is probably going to be uh, unique to that particular individual? Yeah, for the most part. Or, or are there, or are there, uh, or are there universal patterns? I think the pattern would be um, <laughs> the pattern would be there is a trigger, uh, and the circumstances that lead to the trigger would differ from individual to individual. But I think in this discourse, we also need to to bear in mind that um, the the balance of filicide tends to be huge towards the mother because for the primary for most uh, in most instances the mothers are the primary caregivers so they bear the bigger part of the burden of the day-to-day caring for children and the stress that that would come up with and i think that's something that we mustn't lose sight of that we're talking about um, situations where the person that ends up um, committing the act is for the most time the primary caregiver. And uh, one would need to establish, did that primary caregiver have support? What else was going on that would lead to that kind of uh, behavior that leads to such tragedy as the killing of children? And I suppose that is an aspect that we as society are perhaps not aware enough of the the very violence of the the difficulties psychological emotional financial uh that are sometimes brought to bear on a mom i, I remember the story of uh the mom i, I believe who uh, had left her children uh no no i think this was a, a south african mom who li- moved to uh new zealand i think uh, and mm-hmm. then we heard of the story uh, of her killing her children. Um, mm-hmm. what, 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 do, what, do, what do we need to understand about filicide? What, what do we need to understand about it? And what should the attitude of society be towards mom who commit filicide? Because I don't want to sit here and, and almost condone. Yeah, you can't. You can't condone filicide. But I don't want to sit here and almost justify it. Um, but I'm also very much aware of the very serious difficulties that are brought to bear on the mind, the, 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 the psychology of a mom who has no other alternatives, at least in her own mind, right? Uh, how should we as society understand filicide? You know, I think the question is I'm a little bit out of my depth on that one because you, that really needs um, an experienced mental health practitioner um, to be helping us unpack that. But I think the question that we should be asking ourselves as society is, what could we be doing to better support mothers, um, uh, to be able to cope with the demand of, of raising children a lot of times on their own, trying to provide for those children 
trying to deal with their own uh, stresses uh, as human beings because the mothers are ultimately also human beings. How do we create societies that are connected? Where people know that they have a supportive network. Where people know that if I need time out, I can take my child to that place and they will be as safe as if they were with me. And Aubrey, if you'll allow me to uh, share a story of one of of my, um, my associate who last week stepped in to look after the four-year-old of one of her neighbors so that that single mother could have a couple of hours to just breathe and just be without constantly worrying how safe is the child. And I think we need more of those um, kind of people within our network that will recognize how hard it is, how really hard it is, and be that support network that says, you know what, just let me look after the child for four hours and you just sleep. And being the safe places where as a mother I can say, there's no food in my house and you are able to step in. That community, that connectedness, that support is really what we need. So mothers know they're not alone and that there is a light at the end of the, end of the, ti- of the tunnel. And they can hear the stories of challenges that other mothers face and were able to overcome. Because I think it's this hopelessness, feeling like you're in a vortex and you're alone and there's no way out that really pushes people beyond the earth. Yeah. Somebody's sending a message to suggest that we are, have become so lenient on crimes that have been committed by women. In fact, this, let me read it to you. It says, not even reported anyway. Typical Masango style. Let's excuse it all because the fault is on the female side. While I could spend a lot of time trying to address this particular, particular caller, I think, I think let's you and I have this conversation. Are we at a place where we tend to be a more lenient in our judgment, in our thinking, in our approach to discussing crimes, even as heinous as uh, filicide, because it's treated by women? Or is it because there is a growing understanding of the difficulties that women face that perhaps before we were not privy to? I don't know if there can ever be a term that says we're lenient because, you know, it's the mothers that would be committing the crime. Um, I think um, we are applying a lens that understands the complexity of the issue that we're dealing with, that understands that under normal circumstances, they, the norm would not be that a mother would kill the child. Yeah. And so we are, de- we are dealing with uh, something that's really normal. And I think all of us are actually trying to grapple with this issue and try to understand the actual real um, cornerstone of it so that we can be able to deal with the cause rather than be, 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 be debating um, the result after the fact.
so so I, I really don't think that there is leniency. Yeah. Um, would we say there is, uh, I mean, I was just, you know, over the last couple of days looking at the, there's a backlog of, of, of cases. But we must also take into account that uh, the legal system does create loopholes for delays in the, and I use the term loopholes very lightly, um, in delays of bringing some of these things to uh, these cases to finality. But it doesn't, there hasn't been a case where a legal um, process didn't kick in. I think leniency would be saying, oh, shame. A mom killed a child. Let's feel sorry for her. The child is no longer here and slap her on the wrist. That yeah. would be leaving. Yeah. But the yeah. court, the, just, uh, the system still does go through the necessary processes that are required in a case like that. Or in cases like so, so, so Benji asks this question. He says, hi, Aubrey, why have babies left and right if you cannot look after them? Not all of us are supposed to have babies. And that's from Benny. How do you respond to Benny? Benny, babies are not, women are not having babies by themselves. And I think we really need to be asking the question. The question we should be asking is, why are the majority of children in South Africa being raised by mothers on their own mm-hmm. when the fathers are alive and around. Yeah. Why are the fathers not stepping up so that the, the balance, the, the co-parenting can kick in and they can be a sharing of the responsibilities and an alleviation of the severe pressure that mothers end up being uh, under because there's a father somewhere who decided he can make a baby, but he doesn't have to look after the baby. I think those are the really more, the more pertinent questions that we should be debating. That fathers are walking around living their best lives, and mothers don't have that option of walking away after having a baby. So how do we turn that behavior around? Yeah. So the children have got the benefit of healthy co-parenting, and the stresses can be alleviated. I had a conversation some time ago, uh, Dr. Linda, with somebody who explained to me why in the vernacular, in the traditional cultural sort of setting, we call the, the home of the mother uh, or the family where the mother of children hails from. We refer it to it, at least in my language, in Sindebele, we say, in other words, your, your, your big home. The direct mm-hmm. translation is your big home. And mm-hmm. this individual is explaining to me, an elder who, who, who is very well versed in issues of culture said to me that the reason why we say um, is because the people of your mother cannot deny you. Mm-hmm. The people of your father may deny you. They may even put up an argument that denies the baby or the child. But the people of the mother can never, the mother can never, the, the family of the mother can never deny the child in any sense because it was carried by the mother. And so, and so the mother cannot, doesn't have the luxury of a, a cerebral argument about the child and whether or not the child belongs to her because the child grew in her belly for nine months Mm -hmm. and 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 that for me is very key to this conversation 
as to why it is important for us to be, to not be glib, to not be political in the way we discuss the issue of filicide, because it is a conversation about two individuals that are inextricably linked by literally an umbilical cord. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so and so and so the 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 propensity the easy debate about oh because it's women oh because uh, women are just having too many children is is a very glib and throwaway conversation that takes us away from trying to understand the reality of filicide. Uh, it's nothing for us to be proud of. It's nothing that we are trying to. Uh, condone it's nothing that we're trying to justify but it would help us as society to try and to understand the underlying issues that create uh, the the reaction or the action of a mother ending up to uh, ending up killing her child so so I'm, i'm i'm saddened by this kind of reaction whenever this kind of conversation is had because it doesn't actually seek to find a solution it seems to it seeks to dismiss a conversation and that for me is a very very sad situation nobody is in any way trying to justify condone or or, or molly coddle the heinousness of the killing of a baby nobody's trying to do do that but we do need to understand the issues that are surrounding it let's go back to the real conversation dr linda when this happens you spoke about the fact that when a mom does ultimately uh, end the life of her own child especially at at the stage when the baby is still an infant the the criminal justice system steps in the criminal justice system kicks in because that uh, that that's murder that's a crime um the question i think more would be do the processes run efficiently the second thing that the question would be asked a lot of times when a mother kills the children she also tries to kill herself if you have been following yes. um, you know the trend and so what you also might you tend to find is that You've got children who have died and a mother who has gone into medical care because, you know, she tried and failed and so on. But I am not aware of any situation where a mother killed her children and, and went off scot-free. There will be psychiatric evaluations, which is part of the process of establishing um, the mental state, you know. There will be all sorts of things that must be done, but they are all part of the process that's required for the uh, criminal or just for the justice system to establish what exactly was going on and whether this mother was in a state of mind where she could have made a rational decision at the time of committing the crime. So all those processes don't do away with the fact that a process kicks in. They just might take too yeah. long, and sometimes we lose the mother herself before the cases can get to court. But a case would have started. Dr. Linda Ngobenkomo is my guest. She's CEO of the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund. Let's talk about the broader sort of context of the mother and child. There is probably grandparents. There's probably a father and very often it's a it's a, it's a it's an absent father but the, uh, what does this do to the general family and in in a in a bigger way the the society in which the mom and the baby 
emerge from? I think like um, with any death, there is pain, there is grief, especially death that could be avoided. Um, It leaves people feeling very broken, helpless, frustrated, angry. Um, Because, I mean, it's something that people, and, and in some instances, guilty because they could have stepped in and assisted and supported and didn't. And only after the fact do people realize the extent of the seriousness that um, the issue could have been addressed. Whatever, whether, and I'm talking more where it's outwardly showing that yes. there is an issue here. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it does leave brokenness um, and grief and pain, like I've already said. And I think it tends, to, for the most time, to be worsened by the fact that, man, this didn't need to happen. This didn't need to happen. Yeah. And, and, I, and again, it appears to me that, you know, I, I'm, I'm watching, uh, even as I speak to you right now, a conversation taking place uh, on some channel about the growth in the violence that we are seeing at schools, youngsters yeah. attacking their teachers and stuff. Yeah. And these are strange uh, uh, things that have become normalized in society. And so it suggests that there is a broader societal issue that needs to be addressed that creates the kind of of normalized abnormalities like filicide, right? Yeah. Um what do we need to look to, Dr. Linda, at a societal sort of level uh, that that would give us a better understanding of how and why something starts a whole process that leads to filicide? Well, society is starting the whole. And I think the question really should be, what should be happening in the family unit, in the home, that will then pull out to the neighborhood, the greater community, and so on. And a lot of homes, it almost feels like there's been an abdication of nurturing of children. So I'm dealing with my own stresses because I've got a stressful job and my children must just get on with it and watch TV and TV must raise them. And there's not enough investment in us being able to build a solid, supportive unit at a family individual level. So if we were to go back to strengthening the family unit that so that it nurtures children, so that it protects children, we would then be able to see the overflow of that. But if the family units are dysfunctional, then we're going to ultimately see that dysfunctionality spilling out into society spilling out into schools. So if children are coming from homes that are violent and there's no love and there is no building of values of respect and honesty and so on, the poor teachers are going to be the victims of those children that have not been raised in homes that are trying to build a responsible member of society. So what we need to be doing differently is looking inwardly into the home and saying, How do we raise children in a different way? How do we get the tools to be able to raise them without having to resort to violence 
and then expect them not to use violence as a solution to issues when they, when, when they get older, when they're out of the home and so on. So our family unit is broken down. And, uh, and, and as a consequence, our societal unit is broken down. Do you think that's a reversible phenomenon? It's going to take time and probably a generation of intentionality and working at it diligently, consistently for us to start getting the results. So if we start with the generation, the little ones that are being born now, and we start to, to turn around the tide of how we're raising them and nurture them, nurture these children rather than just let them be. I believe we can turn the tide around. But at this point in time, we're blaming everybody else. We're blaming government. We're blaming, blaming everybody but us. And I think as mm. the caregivers in whose hands these children are in the homes, we need to be looking inwardly and saying, what am I going to do differently with this child that's in my care so that I can make sure that I have raised a person that respects others, that loves others, that honors others, and has got the values of what builds a cohesive um, society? We have a, a sad history in this country that cuts into our social sort of um, realities that cuts into into the way that we perceive ourselves in the way that we perceive the spaces we live in uh, that is still you know that we're still trying to resolve Um, Mm -hmm. traditionally there was the idea that a, a, a family raises a child or a village raises a child but we become uh, societies that live in flats, in small little yards, uh, insulated from each other in a in a in a communal sort of way, where where we don't share values and 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 ways of upbringing children because we're all so busy trying to make that almighty dollar. If the Americans were listening to me, they'd want to shoot me. But uh, the 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 whole way that our lives are are structured is focused on trying to survive to put something on the table uh, we have the reality of the migrant labor system that broke up families um in the past uh, whose uh, vestiges we're still living with even now um it, it almost seems to me that we need to find a way of becoming more human for the sake of babies that are going to be born in these untenable sort of uh, realities. Um, how do we find ourselves, how do we make ourselves more human under those conditions where the economic situation, financial situations of families are uh, forever getting worse and worse and worse. How do we cultivate a sense of humanity that would, at the moment that mom is so overwhelmed that she thinks the only answer is to take her child's life, that something would step in and say, no, no, not that. Aubrey, I don't even know what the answer would be, but I can share some thoughts. What you've described 
is a reality that's not going to go away. So we're never going to go back to living in villages where there is a little community mm-hmm. and your child is my child. That we we now living in the uh, in, a, in a reality that says we're in, in a concrete jungle. We in little contained spaces and so on and so on. And I think what it's going to need for all of us collectively to think around is how do we then reset our humanity under these drastically changed environments? The second thing that, you know, we talk about, and but we, we never really try to figure out what the solution could be, is the post-traumatic stress disorder that we have as a country. Yeah. You know? We thought that when 27 April 1994 came, all the trauma, all the pain, all the suffering that had been happening for decades prior to that would just go away. And it's not going to just go away. And again, this is where we now need the people that are more experienced in how to to work with trauma, in group settings, and I don't know whether a country can be called a group setting, but we really now need to be starting thinking solution-wise. How do we deal with the effects of the trauma of a whole country so that the, 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 that trauma does not flow out into the behavior of how we're now raising the next generation? Because ultimately, at the end of it all, we carry deep pain within ourselves and we're giving birth to the, to, to that with, with that pain to, to young people that are even in some instances genetically altered because of the trauma that was being carried by the people that birthed them. So we now need to call in the real experts in these type of things that can say South Africans we are going to reset in 2024 these are the baby steps we need to start taking as a nation. Because if we don't, 30 years from now, there's going to be another Aubrey and another Linda having a conversation around these issues still unresolved. We were having a, a conversation with an expert yesterday who was talking about the, the depression of of an unresolved past and an unreachable future. So an unresolved past creates the depression because we constantly look back and we ask ourselves questions uh, of why, why the injustice, why the oppression, why all of those things. Mm. And then we look to the future and we had dreams, we had a particular hope and a desire that we all sort of incubated in our collective womb, as it were, for a better South Africa, a better place to be. And the conversation basically said that we get stuck either in the past or we get stuck in the dream of a beautiful future but we don't spend enough time talking about our present and the, mm. the unglamorous and difficult work that needs to be done to bring us to that desired future, if indeed we're going to get there. 
Mm. And, and we seem not to have the presence of mind because we haven't really understood the nature of the ailment, the deep depression and anxiety that happens at the same place, at the same time, converging with all of their uh, various uh, various uh, um, uh, uh, complexities that are happening in one mind, right? They're happening in mm-hmm. this one mind. And it's so easy to look to the woman who kills her child and uh, and bring the responsibility and liability and blame on her. Uh, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but I think we do need to acknowledge that we are an injured society. We mm-hmm. are a deeply tra- traumatized society. And it is only normal, in fact, that our society should be producing the kinds of traumatized mothers that can uh, ultimately um, murder their own children. And, mm. and so, and so we see all of these things, Doc, and 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 one can't but feel overwhelmed by the sheer size of the project that stands before us if we are to fix this. Because I'm mm. I'm seeing how more and more we are seeing cases of filicide, uh, and it seems to be growing in frequency and in boldness. <laughs> mm. I, I, I want to ask you, what do we do? Because it appears to me that we are in an existential crisis, um, not only as human beings, but as humanity. Does that make sense? Absolutely, guys. We are. And I think um, so we have an unresolved past and unreachable future, and we need to live in the now and the present. And how do you live in the now and the present? is one day at a time looking at what do I need to do now (laughs) at eight minutes to nine and you work on that and then you look at what do I need to do now that it's 10 o'clock and tomorrow you start again and you consistently looking at what do I need to do now so that I can ultimately make progress towards that future and so we're bringing it back to the question of, of what do we now need to be doing to take better care of pregnant mothers so that when they deliver the baby, we can eliminate the stress of the baby is underweight. So now the mother is stressing because the baby doesn't make the active grow of the baby so well. And the next step becomes, What do we need to do to make sure that this mother who is living in the deep, deep parts of the Eastern Cape, where rural, where poverty is really scary, what do we need to do to make sure that she is having adequate nutrition for her baby to grow up and to grow and meet the developmental milestones that they need to meet in that process of early childhood development? And then what do we need to do? And it's got to be constantly a question of what do we need to do and do it? What do we need to do and do it? And I think with those baby but consistent steps, we will start to work towards a a, a situation where we can start to alleviate some of the pressures that come up up with uh, mothers who are disadvantaged long before they have delivered the baby. And by the time this baby comes, the stress levels are going through the roof and it's just a ticking pop. Many years ago, I read a, 
uh, uh, I suppose it's a, it's it's three sort of books by a guy by the name of Neil Donald Walsh, um, Conversations with God. And in his third sort of edition, in his third book, forget what the title of the third book was, but it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a almost a meditative conversation about about all these big existential questions that we talk about. One of the things he suggests is that we need to be looking at creating societies that are specialized in that people who are at childbearing age are perhaps not equipped to nurture and look after children. And that that job in an ideal society should be the job of the elderly. Uh, because those that are in the prime of their sexual and vital and virile sort of life should in fact be creating wealth and making work, uh, produce uh, stuff, whatever it is, and that those that have developed the wisdom, the temperament of the ages be the ones that then look after the children. And he, he, he talks about that as a, an ideal that we can look to, to say that perhaps we need to re-engineer how our societies are created so that we understand that there are, there is a cohort of people in our society that are about making sure that our species continues to live. But then that those that are older are about uh, making sure that we are inculcating the right sort of ideals and uh, and um, uh, and value systems that make for a sustainable species, humanity, globe, uh, the whole thing, as it were. Uh, should we be seriously starting to think about how we we in a in a wider global sense, in a meta sort of sense, uh, Doctor, uh, how we are to arrange our societies. Oh, that's very philosophical, Aubrey. Um, I think without the reset that we need to ground ourselves again in our humanity, in our Ubuntu, uh, we might find that even if that happened, we would still have a crisis of existence. Mm. So why do I say that? I mean, if you look at some of the things that are happening to children in South Africa, you hear of children being raped by grandparents (laughs) who who should be looking after them. So unless we have a reset of we are a nurturing, we have Ubuntu, we recognize that children are human beings from the time that we receive them into the world, I don't know that the treatment will be different. I mean, tonight we're focusing on the mothers that are killing the children. Mm. But if we were to expand that conversation, we would realize that South Africa is, is, is a country where we're just killing children, you know? If you look at our averages of child murder, in a, in, you know, we have got 5.5 child murders for every 100,000, and the global average is 1.6. So we do need to just 
stock, reset, we deal with our collective pain. And hopefully at the end of that work towards what looks like an unreachable future will be a South Africa that's safe for children. Whether those children are at home with their mothers or other caregivers or children are at school or within in greater society, we will have created a South Africa that's safe for children. Dr. Linda Nguben-Komo, as we close, clearly this kind of conversation doesn't end. It's one that we need to keep having, keep looking at the uh, possible solutions. And as you said, minute by minute work that we need to do. Uh, I want to thank you for discussing a very, very difficult conversation. It it just leaves me numb um, to think that a mom, uh, that that first and final place of refuge for a helpless child uh, can ultimately uh, kill their own child. Um, I want to thank you for the sensitive way that you and I have had this conversation. And I hope that as we do that minute-by-minute work as individuals and as a country, that perhaps we will find a solution that will protect the children in our society. Aubrey, thank you very much. And and I think as we go about our lives with children who surround us, let's just keep remembering that there can be no greater indication of the state of the soul of the society than in the way in which it treats its children. Those were the words of President Nelson Mandela. And the way we are treating children, whether as mothers, neighbors, uncles, caregivers, save our soul is rotten and we need to rework the soul of South Africa. Thank you, Aubrey, to you and to your listeners. Dr. Linda Nguben-Komo, thank you so much for your time. CEO of the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund.